Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They're the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I will be speaking with Witold Rybczynski on his latest book, The Story of Architecture. Witold is an esteemed writer, critic, professor, and architect. He's the author of more than 20 award-winning books, ranging in subjects from the history of the chair to an account of the life and work of Frederick Law Olmsted, as well as numerous books on architecture. He has also served as an architectural critic for Saturday Night, Wigwag, and Slate. Witold also practiced as a registered architect and is the Emeritus Professor of Urbanism at the University of Pennsylvania and served on the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts from 2004 to 2012. His latest book, The Story of Architecture, takes us on a journey from the Stone Age to the present, guiding us through the timeless practice of architecture. Vigil, thank you for joining On Cities. It is a real pleasure to be speaking with you today. Well, thank you for the invitation. Vigil, you were born in Edinburgh of Polish parents, and you were raised and educated in London and later in Canada. How do you think these early experiences shaped your views about the world? Well, I'm a, an immigrant three times over because, as you said, I was born in in Edinburgh, really accidentally, I should have been born in Warsaw, but the war interfered. My parents were both in the Polish army, which at that point was in in Scotland. Uh, and then they emigrated to Canada and I was, I went to school and was raised in Canada and lived there for a long time. And then I emigrated to the United States. So I think it, I'm always an outsider, and I think I see the world as an outsider. And I, I did a lot, of, I should say, I did a lot of work in developing countries at one point where I really was an outsider. But I think that helped me to look at things and maybe not take things for granted, which I might have done if I'd been raised and, and grew up in a certain kind of environment. So uh, the environment is always kind of not necessarily new, but it's always somehow a little bit strange for me. And so I, I see perhaps that's given me a chance to have insights, which I wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm. Do, do you think it also provided a greater sense of empathy perhaps, or, or desire to, to, to seek differences or, or, or in that kind of global perspective, are you always seeking to connect uh, the places that you that you're not a part so much of. connect, but I think it 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 makes me curious about things, and perhaps asking ask questions that are that might not have occurred to me otherwise. That I mean, if you if you know, there's that old thing, you know, fish swim in water; they don't see the water. But if if you're not a fish in water, if you're always in strange waters, then that you do see the water, and you do see. And you ask yourself questions about why, you know, why is this this way? I mean, it could have been another way. And uh, I mean, I, I remember write, writing a book once called City Life about the growth of American cities. And it all started because a friend of mine asked me, she had just been to Paris and she was from Montreal. And Paris is very different than Montreal, even though people speak French. And she said, you know, it's really very different than Montreal. Why is why are our cities not like Paris? And I thought that that was a really good question. And that was kind of the theme of the book was trying to understand why are American cities the way they are? Because they're not like Paris. They're spread out, they're vertical and all those things. 
And I mean, the ultimate answer was there that our cities are the way they are because that's the way we want them to be. And we're not French and we didn't, we never had a king and we never had the ancient history of, of the long history of France. And we also had all this space. So we spread out. Why not spread out? We, we, we were, we could do that. And of course we were a democracy, not from the beginning, which was, which, which made for different cities. Our cities are the way we are because that's the way we are. And we want them that way. And they're not a mistake. They're, they're the way they reflect an awful lot about the, the, partly the history and partly the desires of people um, who after all are all Europeans. So you could say that people who first came here all came from London and to a lesser extent from Paris, but certainly from many European cities. And yet they didn't build European cities. They built very different sort of cities. Mm. Yeah, and hearing you speak, I think sometimes the simple questions can lead to profound investigations that ultimately unearth uh, truths. So I think um, I think you're a great storyteller. We're going to talk more about that in the coming questions. But but I'm curious before we get to um, the subjects of your book and obviously your your latest work, what led you to study architecture eventually in Canada? Well, I wasn't one of those people who wanted to be an architect from boyhood. Uh, I I had finished high school, and both of my parents had been to university. My grandfather had been to university. So it was taken for granted that I would go to college. And, of course, I had to decide what I was going to study. And my father was an engineer, and I, I didn't want to study engineering. It seemed too not creative enough. That That's a sort of silly boyhood idea, but that's what I thought. And uh, because engineering can be very creative. But so I didn't want to study engineering, but I, I, I don't know if you had this experience as a daughter of immigrants, but the, the ch children of immigrants can't just indulge themselves in education. They have to do something practical. So I had to do a profession. I had to I couldn't go and study something like, say, archaeology, which interested me. Um, I sort of dabbled a little bit in writing in school, but I could never say, well, I'm going to study literature. I mean, it had to be a profession. It had to be something practical and uh, realistic from an immigrant's point of view. And there was no choice about that. That was clear to me. And it wasn't, I didn't question it. It wasn't an imposition. It was just that's that was obviously the way it was my father's profession of course had allowed him to make a living he emigrated to canada from england he was it was like 1953 so he was probably in his 40s it was only the fact that he was an engineer that enabled him to to i mean if he'd been a, a lawyer or an academic uh, he would have had been in trouble. He would have ended up being a doorman in a hotel or something. But as an engineer, engineering was something solid. And I think that's what drew me to a profession. And I, I had an uncle who was an architect. And I he was he lived in Paris. I didn't know him very well, but I knew he was an architect. And and somehow that made it made it kind of plausible to me and to my parents. And and it was like a compromise. It was it was a profession, but it seemed to have a creative part. I knew nothing about architecture. I had no, I no, I didn't know any architects really. I didn't read about it or anything. But it was a, it was a sort of compromise choice. And I had gone to a Catholic high school, which was connected to a Jesuit college, but they didn't teach architecture. They. I, so I had to go to McGill, which which had an architecture course, and uh, so that's how it started. Really, it was it was completely fortuitous. It was not a, a sort of scheme or a dream or anything like that. Mm. Yeah, uh, I think you know it's interesting because you you became a registered architect and you practiced. Um, and as you said earlier, you practice in a number of developing countries, as I understand it. Um, but I, I was curious because architects are typically criticized for being poor writers. It's not generally one of our strengths, I would say. Um, I guess I'm broadly generalizing there. 
Um, and yet, you've authored uh, more than 20 award-winning books. And what is particularly remarkable is that they're of such varied themes. Um, and I, I would argue that it's this work that you are best known for. Um, so, Vitold, how, how do you choose your subjects? And and given the 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 number of tomes you have, does writing come easy for you? Well, choosing subjects, I mean, some subjects come from all different directions. In my case, so uh, sometimes, I, as I told you, I it was a conversation with a friend who said, "Why ours aren't our cities like Paris?" And that sparked a book. In another case. Um, I, for instance, the, the biography of Olmsted that you mentioned, I wanted to write a biography at one point just because uh, I wanted to try my hand at that genre. I, and, and so it was obvious, it, the obvious thing would be to write a biography of an architect. And the architect who interested me at that point was Mies van der Rohe, but I didn't speak German and I, I, I didn't have time to learn German and go through all that. So that didn't seem plausible. Uh, and uh, also, I realized that most architects, you know, are their work is their buildings, and they're they're sitting at a table drawing buildings. It, it's hard to it's not an exciting plot. <laughs> and also, most architects are very honest in their buildings. The good architects, an architect like Louis Kahn, for instance, very his buildings are about this this search he had for creating, being honest in, in designing a building. His writing isn't like that at all. His writing is very opaque and he makes up things. And because architects don't take writing seriously. Writing is just selling yourself to find a client. So it's, it, they don't, they're, they're mendacious. They make up things. They can't be very honest because you can't, tell stories about old clients. I mean, that would be unprofessional and incorrect. So so they don't usually keep diaries. They keep sketchbooks, but not diaries. So it's hard to write an interesting biography of an architect, and there aren't many. I mean, I, I can't think of any great biographies of architects. But I came across an, a short article about Frederick Law Olmsted and you know, Montreal has a park on the mountain designed by Olmsted, which I knew very well. I lived close to it. And, but when I read this article, I came across the fact that he was a newspaper man and that he'd written books and that he was, he had written these, he had traveled the South and written. And I suddenly, I realized that, you know, this, there's, you could write about him because there's some, you know, you, there's, there's a record. He's a person who writes down what he thinks. And uh, and that's what drew me to him. And also at that time, I had started teaching at Penn, which has a landscape architecture department. And so I got to know landscape architects, which I hadn't had any contact with. McGill had no landscape architecture schools. Canada has very had very few at that point, I think one or two maybe. It's, it had something to do with the snow. When when your garden is covered in snow half the year, landscape architecture seems somehow seems like a secondary thing. It's not like Miami where it's in your face all the time. And and so so landscape garden gardening is not a big thing, except in British Columbia, which has a sort of tropical, you know, subtropical climate, different sort of climate. And and that's what so so that's how I came to in this very roundabout way to to Frederick Law Olmsted. And then the more I wrote about him, the more he, he became interesting because he did write so much. And he wrote mm. uh, he was not a draftsman. I mean, most landscape architects today draw their landscape. They look like it. They look like graphic things. He thought his way through. And the drawing came at the very end. He didn't start designing by sitting at a table drawing. He walked around the site. He talked to people. He looked at things and he thought it through. And then, and then eventually there was a plan. But his plans are not sort of beautiful graphic things. The parks are very beautiful, but the plans are just uh, sort of a tool to get to get there. And and they're very much about. I he was a very much about the ideas of what he was trying to do and what would make sense and 
uh, yeah. how, how to plan it. I've had the pleasure of reading that book, um, Clearing in the Distance, and I would highly recommend it. In fact, it's so, um, the story that you tell is so profound of uh, Olmsted and his works that I've actually invited you back to talk mm. specifically about that story. So I'm looking forward to that second episode. Um, but I, I think again, what what surfaces for me in your in your answer is your curiosity about things and your willingness to just pursue different interests, which I think is admirable because not everyone mm. necessarily does that. So um, I would like to maybe turn to your current book which is entitled The Story of Architecture. And it is, um, uh, I would say, a, a very ambitious undertaking as it traces the history of architecture through the tale of more than 100 buildings from antiquity to the present. Vitold, having read the book, what would you say is the difference between architecture, let's say with a capital A, and just building? Mm. Or is there a difference? I think there is a difference. I, I remember Nicholas Pevsner wrote a, a book, which was a sort of almost a kind of textbook when I was studying architecture. It was a, was a history of architecture, sort of history of Western architecture. I can't remember the exact title, but he starts the introduction by saying, you know, Lincoln Cathedral is architecture, a bicycle shed is a building. And, and I remember sort of being reacting against that i thought no that's that's not true a bicycle shed is architecture because so much of what we think of as architecture are practical utilitarian buildings but i must say as i'm as i've gotten older i i can i'm more in agreement with pevsner's point architecture is different from building and one of the differences perhaps the chief difference is the ambition of the builder I mean, when you build a bicycle shed, you want to make it look nice. It doesn't have to be ugly. and But you're basically just trying to create shelter for the bicycles. Whereas it, the, the cathedral builders were doing all of that. And, the, you know, the, they were concerned with practical things and certain functional things. But there was the ambition behind it to make, in this case, a, a, a religious statement. I mean, it could be... It could be more personal than that. I mean, the the Taj Mahal has ambition, but it's a different sort of ambition. It's not some. It's not about the religion. It's really about creating this memorial to to his dead wife. And so, I think the ambition is what separates architecture, and it gets complicated because if you're designing an apartment building, is there really a grand ambition? Not so much, it's a, you, it's a place where people are gonna live. So is that, it's not, it's a different sort of architecture. And the great change in architecture is that for, for most of my story, the buildings that I talk about are either religious or I mean, quasi-religious tombs and uh, memorials, uh, and then and then palaces and uh, civic buildings, city halls, special buildings. Uh, you know, the the great market hall or or a, or a city hall, or, uh, and it's only very much towards somehow somewhere starting in the eighteenth. 18th century that it, that architecture sort of broadens and starts to include I call that chapter the first moderns because that's when when real estate comes in and you know architects like in Bath are designing those crescents which are architectural but they're also places for people to live and so and then there are uh, places where people work or uh, eventually office buildings and so the whole the thing does change at some point but certainly when you look at an office building by Louis Sullivan it's the ambition that he has it's, he's, he's not just I mean Sullivan said form follows function he got very famous for saying that especially among modernists but clearly his buildings are not about function I mean his, he's going his, he's working to create a sort of sense of delight when you look at it, all, all this 
floral decoration. It's not, it's not secondary. That's important to him. And so there is this, he has an ambition to do more than simply create sort of office space, which ultimately was just a commercial project, as, as he says in his essay. But he's, he wants it to be something more than that, which is kind yeah. of going back to the old architecture where I remember my wife said something once. I made a table for our house at the, when we very first got together. And, and she said, it looks like an altar. Architects always want to do these monumental, <laughs> and it was true. And it was there is this. We we all have ultimately this this inheritance. I think from the from the long story of architecture that it's hard to get away from. Mm. Yeah, but it, something that you said reminds me of like one of the oldest maxims, right? In architecture, I think it's the Vitruvian maxim that goes back to the idea that. It's utility, commodity, but then the last word is delight. And so maybe what you're talking about, it's those buildings that aspire to delight, somehow differentiate themselves from, let's say, mere building. Um, but I think, you know, your book chronicles a little over 100 books, if I'm not, I'm, I'm sorry, 100 buildings, if I'm not mistaken. And I was curious, um, what themes would you say connect the various works of architecture that you highlight in the book? Are there certain themes that you that surface after analyzing this breadth of history? I mean, the, the hundred buildings was not where I started from. I it wasn't. I wasn't. I was setting out to tell a story, and it it just that I, at at one point I realized if I'm going to tell the story and I want to describe how a build how architecture emerges how it's you know that it has the sort of materials and ways of building and then it fits from the society that i the only the best or the way i decided to tell the story there are other ways was was to pick was to take a building and then go into it in some detail because there's a client then the first decision is not the architects it's the client decides he this building and the building is it comes out of a society and it uh, it isn't you know it has it has a function uh, that that the architect is is grappling with but uh, so I focus on buildings because then I each chapter effectively because you run out of space each chapter becomes maybe three, two, one, two, three, or maybe four buildings. Some chapters only have one building. Hagia Sophia takes up a whole chapter because it's such a complex building and you know, such an important building. In other cases, I sometimes compare different buildings of the same era or different buildings by the same architect. Uh, Gaudi gets a whole chapter to himself, but there are several buildings of his which I discuss. So the building becomes sort of a vehicle, but but I I go into it in more detail because the the theme I suppose is is the different ways in which architects are sort of approaching the same problem uh, and the things that influence architects. Um, Architecture is not a science. I mean, architecture doesn't get better. What's what's most striking about architecture for me is that it starts with the Parthenon in some ways. Not I, I go back to the ancient Egyptians, but when the, the Parthenon is very early, and it starts with a building that for most architects for the next several hundred thousand years is, is like that's as good as it gets. So it doesn't start with something crude and half-baked and then you improve it and eventually you get, you know, modern medicine. <laughs> you start off with a medicine man and you work your way up. It starts right at the top. It starts with this building, which everybody agrees is just extraordinarily good. And in a way, architects are just trying to catch up to it. So, so that's the opposite of most technologies. I mean, you know, the first guns are incredibly crude. And then they 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 sort of 
solve various problems. They get lighter. They shoot faster. It doesn't take a few minutes to load the gun and so on. But as architecture is so different. So it isn't about getting better. It's not a science. It's not even engineering. It's really, it's an art, but it's it's a curious sort of art because the Parthenon is still there in ruined form. But I would say almost every building that I discuss, once I leave the ancient buildings, exists today, and a lot of them are just in use. Uh, you know, the Pantheon is still used as a church. It's, it's, it's still there. And so that's, I think, sets architecture apart in, in, many, in a certain way. And it, it also changes architecture because once the buildings last so long and they're all there, uh, and you're using them. I mean, I'm I'm sitting in a building that's a hundred years old. It's an industrial building that was taint, at one point turned into lofts, and people live in it. Um, but it's a hundred year old building. I don't think of myself as living in an antique. I mean, this is just where I live. This is my house, but it's a hundred years old. So, architecture has a sort of continuing present. It's they're they're old buildings, but if you're living in them and working in them and going to school in them or work or there's their entertainment, you know, the concert halls, they're part of your present. They're part of, it's not like there's old Philadelphia and then there's the real new Philadelphia. It's all together. It's all mixed up. And, and the, if you go to the museum, you're going to a building that's more than much more than a hundred years old. So there's, a kind of con that makes architecture very different. You know, this idea of we must have an architecture for our time is a, a horrible idea and, and completely inaccurate because the, because the architecture of my time includes 100-year-old buildings. So it includes new buildings, but it's also my architecture is the place I live. But we used to live in a very old stone house, which was also more than 100 years old. So that was part of my Philadelphia. My Philadelphia included this 100-year-old stone house, not just the newest building that was built last year. So same thing on the campus. The, the Penn campus includes many old buildings. Well, that's just part of the campus where I was working. And um, I think that changes architecture because it people experience old buildings and new buildings all together. They don't separate it out. Architects, of course, separate it out. I grew up uh, going to school in Montreal, which has the most beautiful collection of Art Deco buildings. Much better, I'm afraid to say, than Miami, which has just these cheap stucco painted ladies. But I mean, Montreal has Art Deco architecture, which includes department stores, an entire campus of a university, uh, police stations, I mean, all sorts of things. It, it's not just a, spe a little special district. It's, uh, it's, it was a very popular style. As I said, there's an entire campus, which is Art Deco, which, which doesn't exist anywhere else, I think, in the world, probably. Uh, we didn't see those because that wasn't modern architecture. That was somehow... Of course, it was modern architecture, but it wasn't the kind of modern architecture that we studied. And so we were kind of blind to that. We didn't actually see it. But it was a very important part of the city. Uh, it, it was it gave a lot of character to Montreal, uh, which sets it apart from from other places. I, I don't know why there was so much. It was partly that. Uh, I think the depression hit Canada less than it did in the States. So that in the twenties and thirties, when a lot of construction slowed down, especially after the third 1930, uh, there was more building going on. And maybe there was a more of a contact with Paris and which after all Art Deco originates there and, and Montreal was a lot of architects studied in France. Uh, so maybe there was that connection. I'm not mm. sure, but it was uh, it was a interesting uh, and a very different sort of uh, substantial Art Deco, beautiful houses too. Well, one of the things that I hear um, in your answer, in in terms of these common themes, um, is this question of longevity, 
right? Architecture um, is not uh, an installation, even though I think today there's quite a bit of focus on architecture as installation, almost like temporary installations. I think all many of, if not most of the works that are mentioned in the book have um, have withstood the test of time. They weather, um, they have long lives, um, and therefore, you know, they interact with multiple generations. So I think that's something um, that could be un unpacked further. Um, and then maybe two other observations that I I think you make um, is this kind of insistence on on construction because we're you know architecture is not painted, it's built. It's not built by the architect. <laughs> it's built by others. So this preoccupation with uh, materiality and construction seems to be another kind of thread. Um, and then maybe one last one, and, and perhaps I'd love you to weigh in on this, but one that I observed and I've heard you lecture on is the question of ornament um, that seems to weave through the book, you know, from antiquity to the present. Uh, I don't know if there would be others, but um, it seems that these three somehow surface throughout the book. Would you, would you agree, or, or or would you would you think there are others? No, I, I do agree. I think construction. When you write a, a book like this, and you're you sort of it's like a thousand ten thousand foot view of architecture, and 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 then you realize that so much of architecture is really just about construction. It's uh, it's about but it's about elevating construction and making it evocative in some way or more ordered. And that, that also sets architecture apart from building. It's, it's, it's construction, but it's not led by construction. It, it uses construction. I mean, pilasters are not construction. They're ornament. They're, they don't support anything. And yet for the longest time, they become very important in architecture because they express construction, even though behind it might be just a solid brick wall, uh, it, it represents something. And I think, so construction is certainly a central theme. And ornament struck me later that I, I realized that so much of what changes in architecture is, is ornament rather than, the construction doesn't change sort of year to year, basically. It, it changes when when new materials happen, and to a certain extent, I suppose it changes like when Romanesque goes from Romanesque to Gothic, and people start using pointed arches. Um, but they're not; those are actually not structural changes because a, a pointed arch doesn't do anything better than a round arch. It just gives you more freedom in in proportions and. Uh, scale. I mean, a, 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 you, a round arch has to have a one to two proportion, whereas a pointed arch can be very skinny, very tall, or it can be almost flat. I mean, the, the architect has a lot of freedom. Um, but ornament is often what sets apart different periods, I mean, different kinds of ornament. And also, it, it, I, I recently wrote a whole essay about it, and one of the simplest kind of dumbest observations about ornament is just something to look at. You you look at a building from far away and you experience, as Le Corbusier said quite correctly, the great play of masses in light. That's what all buildings are from a distance. And, and you see shadows and you see depth behind the columns or darkness. But when you get close to a building, that's not what you see because you're now very close. What you see is the ornament. I mean, if, if it's a door with panels and carvings on it, like the great doors, of sacristy in Florence, uh, or if it's a, a mural on a wall or a statue in front of a building, those are all things that you can look at. And one of the, the sadnesses I realized when you when you get rid of ornament, it sounds like you're doing something efficient and modern, and but you're also losing, there's nothing to look at anymore. What you see when you get close to a modern building is gaskets and, and bolts and and hardware and uh, you know a, a fire extinguisher cabinet or something. You don't you there's nothing to look at anymore. And and it's not a it's not sort of it's not about good or bad it's just that it becomes uh you've lost 
kind of one of the tools of the architect uh, that for the longest time that architect could manipulate that you you could do the big stuff the big the big masses of a building that you see but then when you get close there were other things like you you go in an elevator in the chrysler building it's a very different experience because the elevator doors are beautifully ornamented in that art deco style that the building is designed in so you're you no longer experience the whole building but you're you experience a kind of a little miniature of of the building and it's just interesting more interesting to look at than a flat piece of stainless steel which is what you typically uh. see in an elevator so th that struck me and i hadn't thought of this before and i was i was i mean i like modern architecture uh, i'm certainly not a, a traditionalist in in the sense that i want to go back and get rid of all that stuff and but but it but we have lost something and and uh, postmodern architects tried to get it back, but it, they did it in such a clunky and sort of limited way that it didn't convince anybody, and it didn't last very long, and and it it didn't even it didn't interest the architects very much, and so the, it kind of was a flash in the pan. But but the motivation was there. The motivation was to give you something to that you could look at. Uh, and there were other reasons for it, but that was one of them. So, Mitchell, maybe we could dive into a few of the examples because, you know, I think we're, we've been speaking a little bit about some general themes that tie yeah. these buildings or or this kind of preoccupation for developing a work of architecture. Um, but when speaking with you in preparation for this conversation, uh, I learned that the Lincoln Memorial was one of your favorite buildings, which isn't wasn't like an obvious choice for me. And I just wanted to briefly read uh, a few sentences from your book when you describe it. And you say, architecture is an art and it should be judged as such. But when it is a public art, the criteria are different than for commercial buildings or private residences. Bacon, who was the architect of the Lincoln Memorial, is not well known today, certainly not as famous as his contemporary Frank Lloyd Wright. Yet with the Lincoln Memorial, he created something remarkable, an enduring national icon that spoke to succeeding generations of his fellow citizens. So tell us more about the Lincoln Memorial. Well, one, I should explain the presence of the Lincoln Memorial in the story was partly when you're telling a story like this, there's no way of getting away from the examples that everybody expects to read about because the reason that we know about the Taj Mahal or the Hagia Sophia is because they really are important things and they are they represent something important and they're they're not important because they're famous they're famous because they're important you can't get away from them so you have but I did at the same time you don't you you want to surprise the reader you don't want you don't want to to the reader just to get Oh, one more thing that I've I've heard about before, and so I, I wanted to discuss the Lincoln Memorial because I do think it's a very important building, and it's it is probably by far the most important memorial for Americans uh, that we have, and it's important not only not necessarily only for its architecture, but when you think of the things that have taken place there, the the the, the speech that Martin Luther King Jr. gave there or the events that have taken place which, which are related to it, you realize it, it's a living memorial. It's not simply something that's, that was built you know, more than 100 years ago and that we sort of, that's interesting because it's old and stuff like that. It, it's, a, it's very much part of everyday life. It's part of the 20th century and probably will be part of the 21st. And it was for me it was an important also building to discuss because it it was obviously a version of a greek temple but it was but it was also a very unusual greek temple because first of all it has a flat roof greek temples don't have flat roofs so it, it wasn't and it has skylights which which of course greek temples didn't have 
So it's a very original interpretation. And finally, it's turned 90 degrees. It doesn't have a, no, a door at the narrow end, which is where Greek temples always had their doors. The door is, is actually doesn't have a door. It has an opening on the long wall and has no door. That opening is open all the time. And that's, I think, part of the, the attraction of that building. It's a very democratic building. Is you can go there at midnight and, and walk in. There's no door. They don't close it up. It's, it's, and there's a famous story of Richard Nixon going there and communing with Abraham Lincoln uh, at night. Nobody else was there uh, because it's that sort of building. It's, so what Bacon did is in, it was, was, I think, so marvelous because he turned a Greek temple, which is, after all, a pagan, wasn't even a place of worship. It was a sort of place of commemoration of, of these gods that they believed in. And he turns that into a democratic monument to, to a person whose statue, of course, is inside. Abraham Lincoln is sitting there. And he, he does all that without turning Lincoln into a sort of god. Because after all, if you put a statue of somebody in a temple, it, you're sort of saying, well, this is, he's like a god. And, and yet he, he isn't, because the statue is so wonderful. He's, he's so tired. I, I I remember there was, I think it was the sculptor who's, who somebody asked him what, what, was, what was the theme of the statue. Uh, and he said, his work is over, victory his. And that's, that's what you see. You see this very tired person, but, he's, but he's, he's done what he set out to do. He's, you know, he's won the Civil War because it's, it's a war memorial. We don't think of it that way, but it's, it's surrounded by the names of the states that, first of all, the 13 colonies, but then the, the states that were part of the Union at the time of the Civil War. And then other states are, are added later. And there's a lot of iconography. There's, of course, the whole speech of the, the second inaugural is there and the Gettysburg Address is there on the wall. You can stand there reading. You go there and you see people, young people, kids, old, re just standing there reading the speech, which, of course, we all know the speech, but we, we sort of read it in school, probably. But it reminds you of all of that. So... Uh, it's a it's a it's also very unusual. We know, and I, I write about this in the one of the things that makes the Greek ancient Greek temples and architecture so important, I think, and, and successful is all these things they did, which are almost subliminal, where the 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 emphasis on the columns or the fact that the columns aren't straight or the fact that the spacing of the columns isn't equal. The corner columns are a little bit closer together to, to, to counterbalance the visual impression of a corner that opens up too much. Um, the columns are are actually all tilted in a in a Greek in a in certain Greek temples like the the Parthenon, and Bacon did all of that in that building. The base, for instance, is not flat; it's slightly curved. Uh, to kind of compensate for it. So all of these things are all part of it. And I think they subliminally work. They're, they they affect people. And, and that's also a reason, I think, that this building has, has often taken center stage for demonstrations and political speeches and various things, because it, it has this quality, which is not simply, it's not a copy of a Greek temple. It's, it's sort of taking a memory of a Greek temple and creating something quite original out of it. Mm -hmm. and, and I think people recognize that. And uh, so I wanted to talk about it for that reason. And because it, in a way, it's also one of the last buildings of that sort. It's relatively late. I can't remember the date now. It's in the 30s sometimes. So it's it very much... Uh, represents the end of a sort of architectural era, at least in, in sort of public architecture in, in a city like Washington. Mm. As I listen to you describe it, um, I think some of, some of the things I take with me is this um, marriage between tradition and invention, 
um, also this ability to to connect with the viewer and to stir emotion, which um, I think when I ask my students in in the studio, you know, what brought you to study architecture, um, oftentimes they they had an experience walking into a building that moved them, and I think that's mm. not to be underestimated. Um, I, I think we're coming towards the end of the interview, and I. In, in listening to you to describe the Lincoln Memorial, um, I was struck because I think most people, despite the the you know the importance of the monument, they wouldn't be able to tell you who the architect is. And over the last maybe decade or so, maybe a bit before that, you know, we've gone through an era in architecture that has been defined, and you talk about it in the late chapters of your book um, by star architects. Do you think that that phenomena has hurt the discipline? Um, this kind of phenomenon of the star architect? Henry Bacon was a star when that building was built. The, uh, there's a, a, one of the scripture, they, the architects all got together and they, 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 they rented a barge and they sort of brought Bacon, when the building was being completed and opened, down the Potomac on this barge. And there was a whole kind of celebration. Uh, and, and, so, and I mean, Michelangelo was a star. The, the Pope wanted him, you know, took him out of retirement to, to, to finish St. Peter's. So I don't think it harms architecture. I think uh, it, it, you can argue about whether our definition of stars is based on what it's based on, because uh, Michelangelo was a star because he had he had done the, the these sculptures, and you can look at the sculpture of Bernini, and that's what it was based on. It wasn't based on media or or, or photo. There was no photography. There, that you had to go and look at the sculpture, and so there was a more immediate aspect to it. I think the fact that so much of present day. Uh, stars is based on photographs and magazines and television and films. So uh, people may never have seen the Bilbao Museum, but uh, they've seen pictures of it. They they know it. I mean, they 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 or they feel they know it, and so that's uh, a, a difference. But I don't think the phenomenon is is necessarily architects. There were. Somewhere starting with in the in the Renaissance, basically, architects became famous people, and uh, or people who did architecture became famous. Because of course, most architects were famous for they were artists, they were sculptors like Raphael or or painters. So they were they were famous for other things as well. Uh, I, I, I spent a, a, a chapter on Gaudi because Gaudi, for me, is interesting because he's the first architect who's he's sort of like Frank Lloyd Wright. He's famous for being Gaudi. He, he, he isn't part of some tradition. He's sort of inventing things, and that's where his fame... He wasn't famous at the end of his life. He was forgotten by the end of his life when he was working on Sagrada Familia. But for 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 much of his career, that's what attracted people to him. Uh, they they liked his. It was the unusualness and and the very personal quality of his architecture. And I think he was one of the very first architects who exemplifies that. I mean, even Michelangelo, who did kind of by the standards of the Renaissance kind of weird stuff these giant columns that he but but he was working in a language that that was the same language as as other architects of his time whereas Gaudi was really going off in a very personal quest that took him that was much more like what then architecture became where where we expect architects to be personal we don't expect them to we actually don't. We don't even allow them to copy other architects. Uh, the, in the way that our, traditionally architects copied buildings from the past and improved them, and but that was that was how architecture moved ahead. And now, if you know, uh, say Louis Louis Kahn designs the Kimball Art Museum, but you can't. You're not allowed to copy him. 
everybody says it's a great museum, but nobody can build it again, which is, which sort of puts a break on architecture because architecture can't develop the way it used to. Whereas in the past, you know, Palladio did a, a house with a dome in the middle and a whole bunch of very talented architects tried their hand at the sort of same party. They all, there are many versions of the rotunda, the Villa Rotunda for, by other architects over hundreds of years. People find inspiration and that that's kind of disappeared from architecture. And I think architecture is, is the poorer for it. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a poignant uh, comment um, because I, I think that um, looking back doesn't mean that it's a copy. There's always a translation, as you pointed out in the case of the Lincoln Memorial, correct? Um, but if we take it off the table, then we uh, train a future generation that is uh, as a kind of anemic understanding of the discipline. And I think we, um, you know, we, it'll come to to kind of surface in one way or another. But as we come to to the end of the conversation, I just, um, since I'm going to have you back, Vitold, I'm not going to ask the classic question that I ask at the end of all my interviews, which is what is your favorite city and why? I'm going to leave that to the next episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to thank you uh, for um, the remarkable new book. Uh, I would highly recommend those who have not read it to seek it out. Um, it's not only um, a pleasure to read, it's accessible. It gives you the large breath and still connects you across time. So it's a it's a real gift. Um, thank you for taking time uh, to speak with us today. And, and I look forward to reconnecting with you for our next story on Olmsted. Thank you, Vito. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week. 